Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 266. So in a couple weeks, uh, when is this actually? This is a great way to start the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I saw this email pop up uh, on my work email because I subscribed to Macrofab stuff. And and I popped up and I'm, and I'm thinking about it. I was like, yeah, when is this? I, don't, I didn't even see when it was. It's March 10th at... 2 p.m. Eastern time, there's a design for manufacturability webinar that Chris Church, who is the other co-founder of Macrofab, and uh, Edwin Robledo. Is that how you spell? I think that's correct. Uh, from Autodesk, we'll be doing a webinar. It's going to be about design for manufacturability, and their topics are going to cover fiducial essentials, via and pad, blind buried vias versus back drilling, Acid traps, stack ups, edge clearances, annular rings, all manners of basically DRC and DFM checks that look like uh, Eagle covers in their DRC tool. Well, go figure. It's Autodesk, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so go sign up for that. Um, I'm probably going to sign up for it just to listen to it on, you know, while I'm working. So yeah, that's that sounds uh, sounds good. I'll probably sign up for that too. We've we've talked about most of these things um, on the podcast here throughout the last couple hundred episodes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, hopefully, you know what I think. I think I've met Edwin before because he looks familiar. Let's uh once again. That is March 10th from two to three p.m. Eastern. Yeah. I think I met Edwin at uh, at a San Mateo Maker Fair back in 2009, maybe. Hmm. I don't know. He looks really familiar. And we were talking about Eagle, and that was back when I wasn't using Eagle. I was using Free PCB. Ooh, that CAD tool. Yay! Those ones um, are fun. Those ones that lock you into their Gerber export stuff. No, this is an open source PCB tool. Is it open source? I don't remember. But the, def- the website definitely looks like it locks you back into 1995. But this was a, a, oh, it is open source, a free open source PCB editor for Microsoft Windows. But it did like one to 16 layers, which I only did like two layer boards. But there was there was no schematic editor. I think I've talked about this before. Oh, you just did it all straight on the board? Yeah, you made netless in the text editor. Oh, man, that's brutal. And then... um. You could do a netlist through the PCB editor too, hmm. and then you would route boards. Did it actually provide rat lines based on your netlist? On the net lines, yeah. Okay. Netlist, yeah. Um, but yeah, I built a couple of my first products using that tool. Wow. Latest news: 2011. The user form is back up. We don't know what the problem was, so we reverted to default mode and blame it on Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> So this uh, design for manufacturing webinar, uh, we'll have a link up in the show notes so you can go and um, sign up for that. And uh, I guess macrofab.com slash blog will get you to the show notes. Exactly. Or slash podcast. Oh, right. My bad. Podcast slash podcast. Or slash blog slash podcast. <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Yes. Through the URLs. Okay. Um. So today, I don't think we'll be talking for DFM. But more like DFT, designed yeah. for testing. 
And um, this is kind of like a, uh, I'm, I'm kind of going through my, I've done like products before in the past, um, but this is kind of like my first stab in the last couple of years. That one, like this, I'm talking about the Pinatar pinball platform and all the other boards that go with it, like RGB lights and stuff like that. Um, and so I was kind of like coming up with an idea, like, hey, what's my test procedures going to be like? And lots of knowing what I know eight years down the line from Star Macrofab, right? And uh, so I guess we'll just jump right into that. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of like my, um, like, kind of like cliff notes, I guess, on what should you think about when you're doing your first production run and what you should think about when building a test procedure. So the first thing is take lots and lots of pictures because what, what's the old, what, what do you call those? It's a picture is worth a thousand words. What's yeah. that statement called? Oh, um, adage, right? I, th I think it's adage. a proverb or short, short statement exp uh, expressing a general truth. So yes, an adage adage okay um because it doesn't make any sense when you translate into a different language <laughs> <laughs> the cost of a picture is 1000 words yes <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh so take lots of pictures i i really like taking pictures and then drawing on them with like arrows and text on the picture because it, it's looking at a picture and then pointing out this is this is a lot more uh it's easier to convey than having a picture and then trying to explain what you're trying to point out in text with that picture so there's there's those memes where like uh useless red red circle memes oh yeah where people will send you something and like have the important things circled in red do that with your test instructions though i like to do black text with white surrounding like outline kind of like a, the meme text format because you can put basically white text with black outline or black text with white outline on any color and it has it's enough readable. contrast to stand out so you can yeah. easily read it keep the test procedure up to date as you're developing it like develop it at the start like basically i start doing it when i had the schematic done for my board so that I have the schematic done and I'll start writing the test procedure for it on that. And so as I'm doing the layout, I can add, either add, if I need to add like a connector or test points or something like that to the board, I can do that then instead of at the very end and be like, oh, now I need like eight test points somewhere in my layout and it doesn't fit, right? Um, keep it version controlled. 100%. Yeah. Um, at, you're probably going to talk more about the documentation side later. I see that on your list. Yep. So I'm going to, I'm going to skip that, that section of mine. Um, hand, if you are able to hand off the test procedure to a colleague, especially <laughs> one that like maybe doesn't have any idea of what your product is and have them run through the procedure. Um, or better yet have like your kid run through it, like a, like a Lego instructions or, or, uh, so basically someone who is not um, associated with the project at all, because that's going to be where, because that's basically what's going to be happening with your test procedure. It's going to be handed to someone who has no idea what this thing is 
and they have to test it. Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, four. Work with your CM on your test procedure. Uh, start early, especially with your prototypes, because you might be thinking, okay, my prototypes don't need to be tested because they're going to be tested when they come back to the lab or come back to the company. But work with your CM at the beginning with that test procedure, with those prototypes, and maybe start implementing some of the testing with the prototypes like, hey, can you just beep test it with the multimeter? Power it up. Make sure it doesn't smoke. That kind of stuff. Just so that your CEM starts to get familiar with your product, uh, with like how it looks and how does it hook up and connect to power supplies and that kind of stuff. Um, and that, that's actually a big one here at MacFab because that's like part a um, big part of my job at MacFab is working closely with our clients to flush out all their procedures and fixture designs. So the earlier I can get brought on board to a product or project the better that ends up being in the end and the faster too. You, you know, I, I had a, I had a meeting with a client today. Uh, it was actually like a, a, um, um, gosh, a recap meeting. We had finished an entire project with them and they, uh, they set up a meeting where they're like, Hey, we just want to review the entire project. We would like to tell you some things that um, would be helpful for you the next time. And we want you to tell us stuff that would be helpful for us next time. And they asked us, they're like, okay, this is, this was our first time doing cm run pcb stuff uh and they were like if we want to do this again how how early should we we rope you into the process and i was like there is no such thing as too early like yep, if correct. you have a concept for a product like start talking to your cm then yes um it's amazing how because how early on coming up with ideas for testing improvements or assembly improvements can be worked into your design that early in a concept. Um, Even things that are as simple as like, oh, this CM has a huge stock of this connector. Uh, I can use that for board-to-board -board connection as opposed to going and searching for one. You just rapidly in uh, or you, you just you just made your design cycle a lot quicker because you don't have to go search for a dumb connector and you know mm -hmm. you're, you're going to be able to have it as soon as you want it yes stuff like that so this is this is another one that uh another idea that i would say the majority of customers i've worked with never think about this until i bring it up and it is what is the acceptable fallout from your production <laughs> zero right yeah that's what most people say is zero now we can we can totally write a contract that is yes you will get zero failure products it's going to cost more because we have to eat because there's going to be fallout most of the time it's from tolerant stack ups or really wonky manufacturing defects that you can't find um i say can't find you can find it with enough deconstructive surgery on a board but that's once again that goes back to what you just said cost it's cost it's cost all about more. costs um so what is the acceptable fallout from your production and this is where you won't know this if you're just building prototype right away okay this is where scaling up your production from prototype to production helps ironing out these qa procedures for your product and figuring out um other random I think we were talking in in uh, the MacRap Slack channel about one in a million issues. Mm -hmm. The one in a million chance, like a tombstone happening. 
or something like a tombstone components. It will happen. It will happen. It's just a really low percentage. Well, when you start scaling up those, those one in the millions, I'm putting in air quotes because it's less than that. Um, we're C3PO when you need them. They give us the odds. Um, those start to crop up and you can start writing procedures early how to handle those. Um, my one example of like a one in a million is uh, we had some boards. I had a board fail for a customer just like this past week and we AOI'd it. Couldn't find the defect at all. Okay. Like could not find this defect at all. It was just failing their test. All their other boards were passing tests. So we're like, okay, the tester is good. Oh, that's good. Couldn't figure it out. Sent it to the customer. And then the customer had to send it to their lab to because de- they tested it and it failed. And then um, they deconstructed it and they found that uh, one of the components, the lead was just hovering, slightly hovering above the solder pad. Hmm. And so the 2D AOI didn't pick that up because mm-hmm. it actually, when you look at the pictures in the AOI, it looks like a perfectly good fillet. Hmm. You couldn't, you'd have to do a 3D AOI to capture it. And so we wrote, put that into our procedure with that product is um, if there's a test failure, then uh, do a 3D AOI on the board. Um, it's basically how do you, how do we go forward on figuring out what the issue is? Because um, these boards were expensive enough to where you can spend that much engineering time to get a, a failed board working. Now, that's that's my next thing is keep your target price in mind when you're doing your test procedures. Because this comes back to the Pinotar and RGB boards. The Pinotar is fairly expensive board because it's, it's medium volume boards, uh, quantity of boards, and there's a lot of stuff on it and it's a big board. So having a robust test procedure that makes sure it's working correctly and having a a, um, and reducing fallout that way is very important. On the flip side, though, the RGB boards, which are like an LED and a and a and some FR4 and like a connector, those are need to be like under a dollar. <laughs> so it's one of those. Okay, test procedure is none, right? Mm. Like it goes into the pinball machine, and if it doesn't work, you just toss it because you're you're te- just testing them increases the price enough to where it doesn't make sense anymore. Um, now we might, I might revise that if like I get like 20% back from a fab and they're all bad <laughs> or right. 20% are bad. Um, but I would say that's probably more of a process issue and not, you know, a manufacturing issue, I guess manufacturing issue and process issues the same, but I'm, I guess I'm separating that out in terms of like a setting on a machine, like a reflow oven or, or a component issue. Well, when it, when it comes to the client, an issue is an issue. It doesn't, it, yes. one issue is the same as a hundred issues. Uh, they all call it manufacturing issue, but behind the doors of the CM, it gets separated into a bunch of different buckets, process yes. being one of them. Process being one of them, yeah. Um, I'm, I know I'm like, I'm thinking of like the client and I jumped immediately into the CM head right there. <laughs> um, and there's one thing on this list I wanted to bring up. Um, it's not in here. And it's um, when you have a test procedure and you have, if, it, if you have a section where a board can fail out, 
please let your CM know what that means. When it says something failed, uh, like let's say motor drive failed, like it's part of your test and it spits out motor drive failed. Let the cus- let the CM know what they can do to figure out what caused that. Is it a component issue? What part of the circuit is the ro- is the reason? Is it because of uh, a connector? S- let them know how they can troubleshoot it instead of just being like, fix it, please. Right. Or just not having any idea how to fix it. That's like, that's something that no one thinks about is it's a pet peeve, right? It, yeah. That one's big on my list. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you have a failure reason, give us why it failed. So I, I kind of want to boil test procedures all down into, into one simple thing. And, and to me, test procedures boil down into understanding the, the other person. So if, if you're giving a test procedure to somebody make sure you have an abundance of empathy for that person. In other words, put yourself in their shoes and everything that you ask or don't ask of that person, like consider the way that they interpret it. Consider the way that they are gathering your information and doing something with your information. Because uh, something, something that a lot of us engineers, I think, forget is that we get so nitty gritty and into the details on our, on our little pet project that was assigned to us. And we know everything about it and we are the expert about it. We are so intelligent about it that we forget that other people have no freaking clue what your thing even is. And so just have even a mild amount of understanding that the person you're giving this all to has no clue anything about your product. And it's your job to let them know everything about your product. And, and, and when you're talking to an engineer at a CM, uh, you know, it, you're, you're paid for your eight hour job to make your little widget and make it as perfect as possible. The, the engineer at the CM is paid for their job to handle multiple of you uh, mm-hmm. and not just you. So you, just as much as you would hate it, it to get a whole bunch of just garbage information about your project, CMs have to deal all the time with getting partial information and having to sift through data. So all that boiled down, it's not just, I'm not here to flog engineers and say everyone's doing a bad job. I'm, I'm just here to say, have a bit of un- understanding for the engineer that has to distill all of your information into something usable for someone else. And, and applying a little bit of that to how you write your documentation goes a long, long way. And, and so I kind of wrote a handful of things that are, are going to be a parrot of what Parker said uh, and maybe a little bit more in-depth, um, but, but all the bullet... Po- it's funny because Parker and I wrote our notes separately and we're writing effectively the same thing. <laughs> and it's not yeah. just because we work together. It's because we work in the industry doing same industry. generally the same thing, right? So <clears throat> the, the, the first chunk that I kind of want to cover is what I call elements of a good test procedure. These are things that uh, as you're writing a test procedure, just keep these in mind. Uh, so first thing is it's almost impossible to have too much information on your test procedure. 
of course, within reason. Like, you don't need to describe the in detail the functionality of your of your device. You just need to have enough information for people to gather what needs to be done. So, uh, once again, you know your little passion project, your your widget that you, you that you've spent your you know the last few years of your life designing. Uh, go go have a beer with your buddy and describe the functionality to, to him over a beer and like get nitty gritty with it. But go to your CM and describe how to use it or how to test it in detail. That's what they want to know. So remember that your CM, whoever's working at your CM can always distill your information down. So if you give them more information, they can sift through that and create something that works for their internal documentation. If you give them less... That's just always less. It's not going to be enough. Yeah. It, they can't make up information. Well, <laughs> they can, well, but it wait, costs wait. a I lot. I do that every day. Yeah, I was about <laughs> to say. Just, just, yeah. Uh, they can always say like, oh, this is all good information for me as the engineer to know, but for my operator, they only need to know points, you know, one, five, and ten, you know, something like that. So provide more information. The CM can always make that whatever works for their internal documentation. And, and understand that at a typical CM, you're going to have typically one person that they call the expert. And like Parker would be the expert on whatever, you know, customer he's working with. So he's the expert. He knows all the nitty gritties of the technical side of things. And then Parker will take uh, that information and give it to the operators. And he'll, he's not going to give every bit of information to the operators. He'll give the thing that's important to the operators, set them up such that they can be successful. So just understand that everyone you talk to at the SEM probably hasn't reviewed your project to every little detail. There's probably one person who has. Um, and then there will be multiple operators who they themselves will have some expertise in your project, but they probably don't know everything about it. In fact, if you go talk to a lot of operators, they're like, oh, it's the, it's the red board with that one weird There's part. A lot of red like, they might not even know the name of your board, and they're the one who's working on it. Or, or your customer name. Right. Yeah, they might yeah. not. They, yeah, like, they will literally just come up with names for this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's okay because the expert, the person who is the expert at, at your CM, they're the one who is controlling the information as it goes around. Um, here's another big one. You have no idea when your documentation is needed. Like, great example. Let's just say you're you 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 worked for ten years at a at a company. You established all of this, you know, all of these products and whatnot. And then for whatever reason, you get laid off. Uh, but that company still needs to manufacture your product five years later or whatever. Your documentation could still be incredibly valid. It might be, in, in fact, crucial for that company. You have no idea when your documentation is going to be needed. You, uh, maybe you halted production with uh, your CM, and they let go a handful of people, but a few years later, they need to reinstate your product. They need to pull up your documentation and find a new, I'm doing air quotes here, expert. They need to go through the information and reset up your stuff. You have no idea when it's, uh, when it's going to happen. So, don't do things like create documentation that is fixed on particular people or locked in people's minds. Create your documentation so it's comprehensive and holistic enough that anyone can pick it up at any time and work out what they need to. And here's a big one for, for me. This is a giant pet peeve. Assume the reader, 
and that includes me and Parker or any engineer you talk to, just assume that they have basic skills. And what I mean by basic skills is like, if you say something like, oh, read something with a meter, that's okay. Or navigate windows, that's okay. Things like that. But like, don't assume that the operator at your CM will write scripts for you. Don't assume that the operator uh, will be able to calculate things for you uh, or, or, or anything that's above basic level. The, I'm not, that's not saying that those things couldn't be done. Just don't assume that. Uh, in other words, don't, up, don't give documentation late in the game. They're already manufacturing your boards and you're like, oh, here's my test procedure. And they're like, oh God, we can't give this to anyone. We have to assign a, an engineer full time to you to do just the testing procedure. That's a, that's a fantastic way to make your costs go through the roof. Um, so all of those are what I call elements of a good test procedure. Just keep those in mind. And, and all of these things are things before you've even written the first word of your test procedure. Just think about these things. Once again, it always points back to like, understand the guy on the other side of the wall that you're <laughs> throwing your documents at. Yeah. So one of the big things on, on that, assuming basic skills thing is if because most test procedures nowadays involve a computer like running hooking it up to a computer and either installing software like firmware flashing it with a programmer that kind of stuff if it takes longer than five minutes to install on a windows box or it can't be installed on a windows box provide that to the cm or get in early enough in the game so you're talking to their quote expert unquote and so you can get that stuff set up ahead of time an operator is not going to spend longer than five minutes installing software for you because that's not their job it's not their job to install software whoever that expert is it's probably the expert is but you need to get ahead of the game because that expert is working on lots of things like 20 customers (laughs) so right right and they're having to do this for all of the customers um and the reason why i bring that up a lot is a lot of times we'll get test procedures that's just like a a script and we don't know what language the script is written in yet yeah most time it's python most time but a lot of times it's something else it's like get this running it's like well what platform what, what what's important now is like what python did you write it for what version 2.7 2.7 or is it three this is like three it's up to 3.9 now and some of them are some of the threes are slightly different that stuff too is very important to document on, on not just necessarily your test procedure but how does your test procedure get set up oh setup is a huge huge thing in fact okay so when it comes to writing a test procedure i sort of point back to Remember how you had to write lab reports and you got judged on how you wrote lab reports? Not necessarily just the content, but how the content was presented. Presented. Uh, I think, okay, more than what they're trying to get you to learn in school about like the end result of a lab report, writing a lab report, a good lab report, is great practice for writing a test procedure. Because even though a lab report half the time isn't saying how to do something, it's saying how you did do something, they're still very similar. I would say they're... So how I write tests... It's actually interesting you bring this up because I just thought about it, 
is I write test procedures like that, though. Mm-hmm. Not how to do something, but what was the how you did it? Yeah. That's how I kind of write it. It's, it's, a, it's a slight distinction, but it's an important one that I basically do a step and then go write what I just did. So at the top of your test procedure, I, I, I suppose like everyone has a different way of formatting, but I, I, I kind of prefer it this way. At the top of your test procedure, there's a handful of things that I think that if they just exist, they cover so much territory and make everyone's life easier and it's actually what parker just said is basically your setup the very top is all the things that are set up and i'm not talking about setup for every time you run the test procedure that's guaranteed needs to be there too but setup for the very first time you've ever seen this document ever what is the setup so a handful of those things are you'd be surprised about this the product or the assembly name like, oh man, just have the name of the thing you're testing <laughs> on the document. Got the thing you're testing, yeah. And don't have it be the name of the document. Like, literally, just write it up at the top. You are testing an XYZ product. You'd be surprised how, how much you don't get of that, where like the file name will be like 15 characters and then the product name or whatnot. That, as soon as an operator sees that, their eyes just glaze over. Like, it needs to be bold written up at the top. Guaranteed, 100%. Make sure, Parker said this earlier, have your, your documentation rev, uh, revision controlled. So you are testing XYZ product and right underneath that rev, I don't care. Whatever you your rev system is, just put it there. Umlauts. <laughs> yeah, rev umlaut. Uber rev. Uh <laughs> Okay, and then this is another thing that that is super helpful if you have multiple revisions of your board. Put a list of all board revisions that this test procedure applies to because whatever test procedure you have might apply to this rev and the last one, but not the one before that. Or the one that's coming up. Exactly, exactly. Just make it so it's really easy for me to open up the document and see, okay, this is the right one. Okay, the, the next thing that, that I would love to see is a map or an image of your product with terms or items on it. So like, let's say you have an assembly that has three boards. One board is called board X. One board is called board puck. And then another board is called Lucy. Have a, a picture that points and said, this is board X, this is puck, and this is Lucy. You'd be surprised how far that goes just to say, like, here are the definition of my terms. These are the things. And and I'm going to say this later in a, in a section, but be consistent all the time. If you call a board Lucy, then any time in the, in the uh, test procedure that you reference Lucy, just always say Lucy. Don't say anything else. And, and that might require you going through and proofreading your test procedure multiple times to say, like, oh, did I do this consistently? Just... Try to make it very clear. So on that, yeah, on, on that note is because um, I've been building a lot of test procedures and test equipment that are going out to our partner factories, and that's actually so you get a so how I have them set up now is you get a like a Pelican case. Okay, I, I'm not buying Pelican cases. I'm buying like the off shelf like no name brand one, but one of those shows up at their fab and they open it up. And the first thing they see is this front page. Yep. That is 
what this, what the, and the case has got numbers on the outside, like identification numbers, but so they know like, oh, this is box XYZ324. Um, when they open it up, it says, this is the product that's, it's testing. This is what the test procedure is. And then what's after that is a manifest of what's in the test tester. Mm. Like there's a, supposed to be a scanner. There's a laptop. There's a charger. There's USB cables. And these are the kind of USB cables that are in here, that kind of stuff. And I've actually gotten to the point where I actually assign part numbers to those things. And so I can just reference the part number. So I don't have to say, oh, grab your Honeywell scanner XB4392 and scan the thing. I'm like, no, just say it's a hand scanner right right yeah but but somewhere in some documentation it, you should say a hand scanner is this part number no that says on the front page get right right yeah on the front page it's like the laptop is assigned this number i'm not going to call it that number the, all the time but just for your reference that's what it is called on the front page great yeah that's super helpful and, and i mean you could go even further and get a label gun and label the hand scanner hand scanner and stick it to there like oh yeah, yeah. there it is impossible to make things too stupid and i'm not trying to say that people are stupid at all i'm just saying like there's no possible way to make it too easy just mm -hmm. shoot for that so so <clears throat> another thing in this top section that i think is actually really important is uh, including a list of all software uh, necessary. So if, if like, let's just pretend like you have something where a customer has asked, hey, whenever a product is done, I want you to write a serial number in an Excel sheet. Well, then Excel needs to be a, a list of software on there. You know, or, or I need, uh, we're, write, we're running a Python script. Python needs to be on there. Or just, I've written a custom program, put you the name of your your program, anything, it doesn't matter. You can make assumptions like a computer is going to have Windows. You don't have to write operating system as Windows. You could, but just that's one safe to, uh, to assume. But, but what that does is it helps that expert when they're going to set up a computer. Maybe they even have to purchase a computer. They're also like, oh, these are the things I need to install to have it ready for game day whenever production goes. Um, and then just like Parker said, if, if you have... Uh, like Python, right? I need Python on there, and the revision of Python must be this. Uh, what modules do you need installed? That yeah. kind of stuff. Even better, though, is if... <laughs> provide those. <laughs> provide those. Actually, one of my favorite things I've had customers do is provide a bootable flash drive with their OS and all their stuff installed on it. So all I have to do is put that into any computer... And then boot off that flash drive. And usually it's like a boot to a Linux distro, uh, like a live disk. That saves so much time. That generally works pretty well. Yeah. So in addition to the software, if you have any files that are required for your thing, write a list of every single one. Put a, put a, a list for every single file. So let's say you have a firmware file that's myproduct123.hex. Like, Put that, write that down. You are going to need a file called this. And, you know, put the revision letter on there. Or let's say your product has an SD card or something that has an ISO that needs to be burned to that SD card. Write the name of the ISO. Uh, just make it extremely explicit. And, and don't be afraid to just write the actual name as it appears on your screen. Like, it needs to be exact. 
Uh, and then once again, be consistent with everything you do. If you, if later on in your, your test procedure, you say, we need to flash this firmware to this, call out the name of that firmware as it's written on that front page on that initial, like, here's the things you're going to need. Just always table of contents effectively. Yeah. So then when it comes down to actually writing what I call the meat and taters of, of the, the test procedure, there's a handful of things that, that I feel make everyone's life easier. So underneath all of those things up at the top, I think a list of required equipment. So just like you put software, have a list of equipment. You're going to need a multimeter. And if necessary, describe the multimeter. It needs at, at least this much accuracy and, or, or whatever. Or if you know, even better yet, if you've already talked to your uh, CM and they say, hey, we have Fluke 87s. Well, then write down you need a Fluke 87 uh, here. Um, if you're in talks with your CM early, say, hey, what equipment do you have? Maybe the CM is like, oh, yeah, we don't have anything. We, we've got nothing. Okay, great. Well, then now you know you need to go buy some meters or some scopes or whatever you need in order to execute. Um, put the list and on bi- there. And a big thing on this, I, ow, I see it here. It says be granular here all the way down the cables. I was about to mention cables. 100%. <laughs> if your thing has a USB A to A cable, write down USB A to A cable, like literally all the way down to every single item. And and I like if somebody has Amazon links or something like that to like, this is the cable I bought or, or whatnot, like include those in there. What, like I said earlier, this is all information that goes to that quote expert. This is stuff that the operators don't need to see. Uh, so when I say I said earlier that the the expert can distill information down, these are all things that they can rip out of the test procedure and then just provide the actual executable steps to the off, uh, operator. But these are still things, in my opinion, that should be in the test procedure that yeah gets sent to the CM. Correct. Correct. Yeah, your your CM is going to build their own set of instructions for their line. Right. They're not just going to print this out and hand it to somebody and be like, good luck. Yeah. Well, they'll do that to the expert. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, no, the expert would do that to him him or herself. Well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, be, be granular. Every single item that you sent, like Parker said, with the, with the Pelican case, every single item in there has an a number or somehow it's referenced and you know what's in there. You have a manifesto of the box. That's perfect. So list every single step as you're writing it out. So try to do things chronologically, do this, then do this, then do this one, two, three, like walk down, avoid parallel as much as possible. Like there shouldn't actually even be any parallel. If, if, if a test procedure requires a lot of parallel action, then perhaps the design need to be, revisited um there and test procedures really shouldn't have forking paths um except for failures failure analysis is what i'm about to say right so so let me let me let me kind of step back one second on that i think you can have parallel things as long as it's not up to the operator to decide the parallel action yeah like if you have a script that's running stuff in the background i don't care if it's going through fifteen thousand parallel options that doesn't that doesn't matter but if the operator has to make a decision 
and like, oh, I'm going down this path if XYZ happens or this path. That seems like it probably could be adjusted such that you have one path to walk down. The 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 one caveat to that is a failure mode. A failure mode is always a fork. It's always a parallel. Um, so if if well, let, let me go on. We'll, we'll, we'll go to failures in a second because there's one other thing uh, that I want to mention before that. And this is one that I think is missed all the time. And it's the most critical to me is pass-fail criteria and being reasonable about pass-fail criteria. What I'm, let's, let's take a simple example. Let's say uh, you ask an operator to measure a voltage. We already assumed that they have basic knowledge. So, okay, they can grab a meter and they can measure a voltage. Don't have something like measure uh, if point is 5.000 volts. You will fail every single item. It has to be target. Show a target, 5.000. Show a tolerance and say, if it's within this upper and lower boundary, then you're good. Always have a criteria that has a pass condition and a fail condition. The pass condition means you go on to the next step, which you we already said listing your steps. Go down to the next one. The fail criteria is when you have your parallel branch. If something fails, don't just say it failed. Say what to do with it if it fails. And the what to do with it might be put it in a bucket. Yep. But it also might be, oh, it failed. Um, maybe something needs to be checked then if it failed. So maybe there's something else that you need to do specifically there. But give instruction on what happens. If you have a pass-fail criteria and you don't have a what to do if it fails, then the criteria means nothing, really. Correct. Yeah, it, it just means it becomes e-waste. Right, right. They'll just throw it away. And, and, well, and you also don't learn anything about why it failed or how much of your product is falling out because of that. And this goes back to what I was talking about earlier is having criteria. And this is, this is use your example. You have, you're measuring a voltage of five volts plus minus, let's say half a volt because that's the USB spec. <laughs> um, so what if it's 5.6 volts? That's a fail. So sure, it's a fail. But why is it? How does the CM figure out what they did wrong for it to fail? And this goes back to, to scaling up. When you start scaling up, you start finding weird issues like this of tolerancing between components. And a lot of times when you are trying to measure these voltages like this, it's mostly for like it's like for tuning or you make making sure you your your it's calibrated correctly. Um, a lot. I, I I think Steven's products, a lot of stuff they build has a lot of tuning involved, like trim pots, setting that kind of stuff. Our the stuff that we do at MacRab, there's some products that do, but most of it does not. So when it misses that voltage, there's not much we can do on our end except be like, cut like you're like holding it up to the customer and like. What happened? More information, please. <laughs> As tears go down your face. Yeah. <laughs> and um, trying to figure out like what, like we built this board to your specifications and it failed your test and we can't find anything wrong with it. And why is that? And that's, that's not a point of the CM trying to f point fingers. The CM is trying to be trying to figure out, do they have a process issue that they can't figure out? And, 
the and I'll say that is the majority of those that I've run into, it always starts falling down like tolerance issues, tolerance stack up issues in like mass quantities, like changing the resistor to a five from a five percent to one percent fixes that problem. Um, but we but a CM can't figure that out alone. They need to know what to look for. Right, right. And actually, so back to the whole understanding thing, um, the the CM is trying to understand your product, but they don't have the intimate knowledge that you do. You need to understand the CM because they don't have the intimate knowledge that you do. Don't immediately just say, well, you built it wrong. Uh, especially if it's a problem like, oh, it's 5.6 volts versus, and the spec is 5.5. That means something's probably operating correctly. It's just out of spec or whatnot. So don't just immediately pounce on your CM and be like, well, you guys screwed it up, figure it out. Like, that's a really great way to sour a relationship. Uh, be- was, oh, man, how long ago was that? that was, that's a really great way to get fired by your CM. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Wasn't that a marketing term that MacFab used a long time ago? <laughs> Probably in one of their uh, monthly newsletters or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I guarantee I've told this story at one point in time. I probably told it to Parker, but maybe even on the podcast. But it, it was it's so etched into my mind because it was it was really poignant for me. At, at my first job, we had written a test procedure for one of our products. And um, we did exactly this where we wrote our spec is we want this number but we're okay with a range around that number. So plus minus some amount. After we had written that test procedure, we saw that all of our products in this entire product line were on the low side of um, the spec. Every single product was on the low side of the spec. And we're like, wait, nothing has changed about our product. We didn't change the design. We just rewrote the test procedure. Well, what we realized was we put a boundary on our, our like we, our target was say five volts and our range was 4.5 to 5.5. Well, what we had realized is that there was a trim pot on, on our board and all of our operators were turning that trim pot coming from beneath. And as soon as they reached the lower limit, they were like, well, it's in limit. So they stopped. So they were calibrating all of our products to the lower limit. And that's, that was acceptable because we said it was acceptable, but it biased the average of all of our products low, which is a little bit annoying. And the way we fixed it is we put the target number as the low spec and we allowed a positive tolerance on that such that all of our operators then turned that trim pot until it was perfectly in spec and all of our stuff average was exactly where we wanted it to be. Keep those kinds of things in mind because operators are not going to say like, oh, well, the target is five volts. I'm going to spend all day trying to get to five volts. No. As soon as they reach your spec, Tolerance. they're done. Yeah. They've done their job. They'll move on to the next one. And that's not them being rude or mean or inconsistent. That's them trying to do exactly what you asked for. So be really mindful when you write your criteria as to how that criteria is actually obtained. Um then and then Parker mentioned this earlier. Pictures are worth a thousand words, hundred percent. You can almost not have, like I said earlier, not enough information. You cannot almost not have too many pictures. If something happens or is supposed to happen, have a picture of it. And I even mean if if your fancy schmancy script that you wrote that like does all the work for you, if that script is supposed to output something, 
have a picture of what that screen looks like when it outputs that thing. Because, okay, so... 100%. Command line is a great way to make an operator just go cross-eyed. Like, an engineer can sit and look at Windows command line and, and decipher all the thousands of characters that fly by. 99% of operators have no clue what's going on. And they're looking for that one little bit of text that you ask them to say where it's just like, test complete, or... It says pass, or whatever. Fine. Like, that's okay. But have a picture of that. Also, if, if you've written a failure mode into your script have a picture of the failure mode and say, if it fails because of this, this is the screen you will see. And like, maybe even like Parker said, like highlight it in red or, or whatnot, like just make it super clear. That goes back to what I'm saying about understanding operators probably have in their personal life have probably never touched command line in their life. So you asking them to run your fancy script in command line is the only time in their life they've ever seen command line. They, they've probably never even programmed before. So it's all new to them. Don't make an, the assumption that they have any clue what your special characters are that you wrote into your script. And then if anything is to be marked or saved, so like let's say, let's say you provide... The results. Yeah, the results. But let's say you provided a, a sticker printer or whatnot uh and like after pass fail it prints a pass sticker and the serial numbers on there i can have an entire podcast about stickers <laughs> show a picture where you want that sticker to go on the board <laughs> like say right here i want it to go here and look i'm being dead serious about this if you care about the angle that that sticker goes on or how perfectly it gets uh, placed on your board, create a jig. Uh, create a jig or create a picture showing it like, I like my stickers being like this and show a picture of a board with the sticker cockeyed at a weird angle and be like, don't do this. Because if you don't provide those pictures, your board will show up with at least a cockeyed sticker somewhere in your in your list. Especially if you're doing you know millions of boards, you're going to get lots of cockeyed sk- stickers on your boards. I, I'm you just cannot provide enough information. Uh, and, and, and that might not even be completely distilled down to the, uh, to the operator from whoever the expert is. They might just be like, hey, guys, we have to put these stickers on perfectly straight and do training for days on end of like, put the stickers on straight. They might not even see those pictures. But if you don't provide the pictures and you just say, put a sticker on the board, who knows where That's it's going and who knows where it's... Uh, what angle it'll be at. Yep. So, no, I, we we're running up on like 50 plus minutes, so I'm not going to talk about... St- I'm going to talk about stickers next week. Because <laughs> holy crap. That's like... Yeah. Stickers are a whole nother beast. Yeah, labels, man. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, hopefully this was all... Hopefully it didn't sound like we're just trying to beat people up on this, but... I hope not. Yeah, I, I, what this is really coming at is like I've been on both sides of yes. of this argument, and uh, and I have sympathy and empathy for both sides. Yes, and that's the big thing is like we have both made products that had to get tested, and we have tested other people's products, and this is kind of like okay, what have we learned in eight years? Yeah, 
MacFab, what the podcast is what five years? No, five. MacFab's almost eight. Yeah, podcast is what five years old now. Yep. Oh, there, so. there's one more thing, real quick. I I didn't I didn't mention this. Uh, this will be this will be a, a quick one. Do not, maybe not do not, but but I say do not. Um, do not suggest hot fixes. So in other words, like if a board fails, just touch up this one solder joint real quick. Like the operator doesn't need to be distracted and go try other things, uh, especially if there's a thousand boards sitting behind that one that they're trying to do a hot fix on real quick. If something fails, it gets set aside and uh, it gets addressed separately, um, perhaps with a separate document or, or, or whatever. different operator. Or different operator, right? Maybe they pass it to somebody whose the job is to do the hot fix, but whoever is the one who's doing your 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 continuous operation, don't suggest hot fixes to them. I would say that's more on the CM side of distilling your information down because you can have the hot fix in there for like have failure path touch up this leg, like because it's probably a cold solder joint or whatever. It should actually be more on the CM's job their expert to take that out and set that up for the, for their line. So I, I actually kind of disagree with you on that one. Uh, but, but you just said that the, the CM gets to choose. I'm saying, don't write this for the operator as if like I'm the customer okay. writing it to the operator, say this operator should do this hot fix. I, I okay. think the CM should choose that. Okay. Yeah. 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 The CM should figure out how that process works. So that was the Macrofab Manufacturing Podcast. Well, engineering podcast, but we're talking about manufacturing. Well, test manufacturing this entire time. So we were your host, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading and listening to our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack. And if you enjoy this podcast, let a friend or enemy know. Frenemies. Frenemies. <laughs>